Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 111, Arden of Faversham and the Domestic Tragedy. Last time, I focused attention on the players once more, with a look at acting styles and stage conventions, and this time, it's back to plays, with a look at a piece that has always been something of an outlier to the main canon of Elizabethan and Jacobean plays, but it is, nevertheless, an interesting piece. It was first performed in 1592, but its authorship has never been conclusively proved. At various times, Thomas Kidd and Christopher Marlowe have been suggested, But the smart money, as much as betting on who wrote an Elizabethan play is ever smart, has settled, if somewhat tentatively, on a collaboration between Shakespeare and Thomas Watson. Regardless of whoever wrote the play, what we can say with some certainty is that it is the first example of the English domestic tragedy, a subgenre that I've already mentioned in passing, and one that would hold a significant place through the reign of James I and would turn up through the 1700s. It is an example of a form that is in some ways the very opposite of classical tragedy, with its focus being on lowly characters, the struggles of everyday life and recent events. There are no kings and queens here, no foreign and exotic lands, no semi-mythical settings. No, here we see the grind of everyday life and the terrible effects that it can have at a personal level. Yet, like its near relation, there is something that tries to elevate the meaning to a universal level. So, let's take a look at Arden of Faversham. The play is based on a true story that appears in Raphael Hollingshed's Chronicles, which, of course, was a favourite source for Shakespeare and many other playwrights. In February 1551, Alice Arden killed her husband so that she could continue an illicit relationship with one Richard Mosby. The plot of the play follows the events as reported by Hollingshed very closely. Thomas Arden is suffering from mixed fortunes. As we hear through the conversation with his friend Franklin, he has just acquired the valuable lands of Faversham Abbey. But his pleasure at this good turn of events is tempered by his concern about his wife, Alice, who, he suspects, is being unfaithful. Although she denies his allegations, she is in fact engaged in an affair with Mosby, a tailor who has risen in society through his service to a noble family. Arden agrees with Franklin to spend a month in London with him in the hope that Alice will miss him during his absence. As soon as he's left to prepare for the journey, Alice drops any pretense and says that she can see no way out of her marriage and resolves to murder her husband. But she needs help, so persuades her servant Michael to carry out the deed while Arden is in London. In return, she promises him the hand of Mosby's sister, Susan. Mosby arrives and agrees to the plan. He recruits his neighbour, Clark, a painter, also promising him Susan's hand, well aware of the duplication in that promise, but concerned only for the success of his plan. Initially, Clark suggests that he could paint a picture that will kill the viewer. Now, that sounds like the introduction of a very supernatural element to us, but at the time there was a well-known theory of optics that suggested that the viewing of an object did form a connection between the viewer and the object with invisible beams, and that this could be manipulated for nefarious purposes. So, to the contemporary audience, it may have sounded like a very reasonable plot point. 
However, Mosby thinks that this is too risky, so Clark provides poison instead. Arden returns and confronts Mosby, pointing out the differences between those of noble birth and those who have raised themselves up through trade. Alice presents Arden with the poisoned broth, but he says it tastes odd and he doesn't finish it, despite her protestations. He leaves with Franklin for London. Alice decides she needs more help and seeks out a man with a grudge. Green was due to get the Faversham lands before Arden beat him to it, so he's happy to take Alice's money, the huge sum of £10, with the promise of double that once the deed is done, and to get his own back on Arden, especially when she spices up her story, telling him that Arden is a cruel husband who frequently abuses her. As he travels to London, Green hires two men, Black Will and Shakebag, who are well-known criminals. They plan the murder for that evening, but their plans go awry when a shop window being closed hits Black Will on the head, and his protests spark a fight with the local tradesman. Arden, Franklin and Michael come upon the fight, but hurry away to avoid the trouble and head for home. With the second attempt of finishing Arden off in disarray, Michael agrees to join the gang, but he is reluctant, with only the promise of Susan's hand and his fear of the other gang members keeping him on board. Eventually, his conscience gets the better of him, and instead of leaving a door unlocked for the would-be murderers as arranged, he wakes Arden and Franklin and invents a story about a dream of the house being broken into. Thomas checks and locks all of the doors to reassure him, and the gang are again thwarted. The next morning, Arden tells Franklin of a dream that he has had about the hunt for a deer, but Franklin dismisses its significance. With three failed attempts on Arden's life, Mosby is beginning to have doubts of his own. He frets about losing the wealth and the social standing that he worked so hard to gain. Was he, he questions, happier when he was a poor tailor with few concerns? In his paranoia, he considers killing all of his co-conspirators, including Alice, who he doubts will be faithful to him, before they can betray him. As he is considering this, the gang are awaiting Arden on the road to Faversham but they are distracted by the arrival of Lord Cheney, and again they fail to complete their task. The next day, the gang continue to plot against Arden, and prepare for an ambush that night as he pays a return visit to Lord Cheney, but dense fog that evening means their fifth attempt also fails. Thomas happens upon the previous owner of the Abbey lands, one Dick Reed, and they fall into an argument about how Arden came to acquire them. Reed curses Arden to die on the land that they had both owned, saying, That plot of land which thou detains from me be ruinous and fatal unto thee. Alice plans to arrange for her and Mosby to be caught together by her husband, thus enraging him and allowing the others to get close enough to kill him. Arden does indeed become enraged as insults fly between him and Mosby, until swords are drawn and the whole gang become involved in the fight. With Franklin's help, Arden fights them all off, wounding Mosby and Shakebag in the process. Alice manages to persuade Arden that he overreacted to the situation and that they should go after the wounded men to help them. Franklin tries to dissuade his friend and remains suspicious of Alice's intentions, but resolves that he cannot come between a man and his wife. In a last desperate attempt, the gang hide themselves in Arden's house 
And as Arden, Alice and Mosby play tables, and at Mosby's command, the gang all appear and jump onto Arden, stabbing him multiple times. They hide the body as Alice mops up the spilled blood, the sight of which prompts the first prick at her conscience. She is soon in tears and cannot hide her upset during a dinner party that evening. Franklin is suspicious and finds Arden's body, which has been moved to an outlying field, and the murder weapons casually disposed of. The mayor and the night watch arrive and arrests are made. In several closing scenes to wrap things up, Shakebag murders a former lover who refused to give him refuge. Alice confesses to the murder to the mayor over Arden's body. The conspirators are all condemned and sentenced to death. In an epilogue delivered by Franklin, we learn that Black Will escaped to the Low Countries but was burned to death there for other crimes, and that Shakebag was murdered in Southwark before he could be caught. The epilogue concludes, Arden lay murdered in the plot of ground which he by force and violence held from Reed, and in the grass his body's print was seen two years and more after the deed was done. Gentlemen, we hope you'll pardon this naked tragedy, wherein no filed points are foisted in, to make it gracious to the eye, ear or eye, for simple truth is gracious enough and needs no other points of glossing stuff. Although the multiple stabbing of Thomas Arden was no doubt presented as a violent and bloody affair on the stage, it is in fact one of the few deviations from Hollingshed's account. According to that version, the unfortunate Thomas was strangled, beaten and then stabbed, and all of that by Alice herself, before she dragged his body out of the house. Again, according to Hollingshed, she made a bad job of cleaning up the crime scene and hiding the body, and was soon the prime suspect. She was tried along with her maid as an accomplice, and both were found guilty and burned at the stake. Richard Mosby and his sister were also convicted as co-conspirators and hung. All rather fascinatingly gruesome, and we should remember that at the time the play was produced, these events were still in living memory. Although undoubtedly a tragic story, this play is not a tragedy in the classical sense. Does it incite pity and fear in the viewer, as Aristotle would have put it? The multiple failed attempts at the murder are more likely to veer to the comic, and although the ruthlessness of the gang in pursuing their aim may have induced fear, feeding on the popular fears of the vagabond on the edge of society, it seems unlikely that the play would result in a cathartic experience for the audience. Perhaps the biggest difference between the domestic tragedy and the classical tragedy is the status of the protagonists. In Arden of Faversham, it is the middle classes who are in the focus of attention. There is no all-powerful king or prince brought low here, but a small-time landowner. The grandest person we meet is Franklin, Arden's friend who works for Edward Seymour, the Lord Protector for Edward VI. So the main characters are three or more removes from the central power of the country, but still important people locally. Thomas Arden does not have that far to fall, making the reversal of fortune within the tragedy less forceful, less shocking. But Thomas is a character much closer in social terms to the majority of the audience. He was the sort of local man who you could meet and have some contact with in real life. Whereas, for the vast majority of the population, royalty and the nobility were an amorphous figurehead who you never encountered 
and as an individual, made little difference to your day-to-day life. Hence the term domestic tragedy and a different sort of play. The main themes of the play speak to the concerns of both the rising middle class and the old nobility. Land, always the basis for wealth through the ancient and medieval periods, is a more prominent concern in the play than we might understand. That closing epilogue makes it very clear that the dispute between Arden and Reed over the Faversham Abbey lands is key to the plot. The Abbey lands were presumably understood as recently under the Crown's control following the dissolution of the monasteries, and something over which there had been much dispute in the recent past, not to mention a degree of land-grabbing by those in the know and who could afford it. Here, Arden is shown in a bad light. The implication is that he is a greedy land-grabber who is out for individual gain, so not a completely sympathetic victim as we might have expected. Reed maintains he has been cruel and unjust, and Franklin's epilogue does nothing to contradict that view. Rather than a court or a battlefield, the home is the centre of this play. It opens and closes in the domesticity of Arden's house, and it's not insignificant that despite all of the attempts to kill Arden while he's away in London and travelling through the Kent countryside, it is in his own home that he finally meets his end. Ultimately, it is a home that does not provide security. Alice allows the conspirators to enter and all but use the place as their own. But despite their common cause, they remain a disparate group. What connects them is that desire for individual gain that mars Thomas's personality too. Alice and Mosby are driven by their desire for each other. Clark and Michael by their desire for the hapless Susan, who ends up hanged with her brother, even though in fact she had little knowledge of the plotting. And Green and Reed, who look to find personal wealth in possession of the Faversham lands. Class tensions are also visible in the relationships between the characters. Mosby's fear of losing his newly gained position seems well-founded when we hear Arden refer to him in derogatory terms. Arden suggests that his attentions to Alice are born from his desire to move higher in society and Arden's own concerns are driven by the public face of any shame that he might face thanks to Alice's unfaithfulness. His fear of becoming publicly cuckolded is very real. References to the cuckold's horns being in full view are frequent, and in the first words of the play, Arden expresses a desire for death in the face of public humiliation, thanks to his wife's behaviour, when he says, Franklin, thy love prolongs my weary life, and but for thee how odious were this life, that shows me nothing but torments my soul, and those foul objects that offend my eyes which makes me wish that for this veil of heaven the earth hung over my head and covered me. Love letters pass betwixt Mosby and my wife, and they have privy meetings in the town. Which of course becomes a very ironic wish given the events of the play. The low characters, Black Will, Shakebag and the rest, underline that theme of the evil of the desire for personal gain. Yet they are strangely prideful in their dirty work. They are professional villains and take their work seriously, however inept their efforts on the whole are. Those two in particular are a comic duo, partaking in slapstick comedy that lightens the mood of the play and engaging in plenty of one-upmanship to comic effect. It is the comedy and the complexity of the low characters 
that has led scholars to speculate on how very experienced this playwright was in the art of constructing character and plot for the stage. Destiny, as in many tragedies, is seen as a prime mover in the plot. Arden may frequently escape death by accident and good luck, but his destiny is sealed from the start and significantly foreshadowed. Black Will says explicitly, I am the very man, marked in my birth hour by the destinies, to give an end to Arden's life on earth. Here we are, back in Greek tragedy, with the dark destiny hanging over the protagonists. Arden, too, is aware of how his life is being forced into a particular route. Arden, like the deer in his dream, is being hunted. His attempt to interpret the dream could come from the rediscovered Plato, but also through the common religious thinking of the time that God could speak to men through their dreams. No one in the audience would have found this idea unusual. Given the mortal sins being proposed in the play, religious concerns seem strangely absent from it. But this doesn't mean that the characters aren't conflicted. Indeed, many of them wrestle with their consciences over the actions that they have agreed to undertake. Mosby speaks of his disturbed thoughts and the continual trouble of moody brain. And, as that concern develops into paranoia to the point where he considers killing his co-conspirators, his concerns are more social than moral. It is losing his recently won position in society that gives him most cause for concern, rather than the mortal sin that he is considering. His moment of triumph, when Alice invites him to take Arden's place at the head of the dinner table, is no triumphant moment of arrival, but a reason for more angst on his part. Destiny again rears its head when he says to Alice, I to the gates of death follow thee. And so we come to the question of authorship. The first printed edition and subsequent quarto editions, published through to 1633, gave no author for the play. As you know, this was not uncommon for the time in printed editions. It was in 1770 when the play was republished by Edward Jacob that Shakespeare's name became firmly attached to it. Others followed that lead, but the claim was never universally accepted. However, it did remain a popular assumption. A.C. Swinburne's assessment in his 1880 Study of Shakespeare is typical, claiming that Considering the various and marvellous gifts displayed for the first time on our stage by the great poet, the great dramatist, the strong and subtle searcher of hearts, the just and merciful judge and painter of human passions, who gave this tragedy to the newborn literature of our drama, I cannot but finally take heart to say, even in the absence of all external or traditional testimony, that it seems to me not pardonable merely or permissible, but simply logical and reasonable to set down this poem, a young man's work in the face of it, as the possible work of no man's youthful hand but Shakespeare's. Modern scholarship, based on rather more than a poet's intuition, is more sceptical. Until recent times, much of the belief in the play being Shakespeare's was based on an assumption that such a well-crafted play, with its intricacies of characterisation, even in the minor characters, and balanced view of human nature, could not have been written in 1592 by an otherwise unknown playwright. However, 
If it is Shakespeare's work, then it's a struggle to fit it in with the known chronology of his other work. Suggesting that it was a very early work, written as he more or less arrived in London, but then was buried for a year or two and put aside until the early plays we know of emerged. Nothing is impossible, but that argument does seem very weak. Those who see merit in the play would like to believe it's Shakespeare's. Those who pick over its weaknesses are happy to see it as the work of another. Modern textual analysis has failed to bring some agreement to the matter. Some analysts have suggested that parts of the play, particularly the middle section, could well be by Shakespeare, while others have favoured Thomas Kidd as the author. Some parallels have been drawn between the play Soliman and Persida and a pamphlet The Murder of John Bruin, both of which have been attributed to Kidd at times, but those attributions are also a bit doubtful, so it's a far from clear picture. Christopher Marlowe has also been proposed, but as a contributor to the text rather than the sole author. Some textual similarities with other plays by Marlowe have been detected, and the setting and the naming of places in the county of Kent where Marlowe was born and raised until he went to Cambridge University adds some strength to that argument. But as with Kidd, there are no links to the play outside of the text that might prove the matter, and the true author remains at the very least undecided. The story, however, remained popular and had a long afterlife. After Hollingshed's account and this play, there was a 17th century ballad called The Complaint and Lament of Mistress Arden of Faversham in Kent. In 1799, the Sadler's Wells Theatre in London produced a ballet, and in 1967, an opera called Arden Must Die was produced. The 1592 play has had revivals, but they are few and far between. There are just three other examples of the domestic tragedy genre from the period that have survived, although none are as accomplished as Arden of Faversham. But this is not to say that it wasn't a popular form in its day. The titles of many other domestic tragedy plays come down to us in the playlists, but sadly not their content. Perhaps most missed is a play called A Late Murder of the Son Upon the Mother by the two Johns, Ford and Webster. Given their popularity at the time, this must have been a significant piece. The mention of the play comes from the licensing records of September 1624, where a fee, double that usually required, was paid. That is either because of the complexity of changes that were requested, or that they were two plays on the same subject presented to the licensing office at the same time. Court records from April that year tell of a trial where Nathaniel Tyndall pleaded guilty to the murder of his mother Joan by stabbing her in the throat and the left breast. He was sentenced to hang near her home where the crime was committed. Two ballads recounting the case were registered with the stationer's office in July, so it would seem that the case did attract much popular attention and would have been a ripe subject for a play. The licensing record suggests that the second play on the subject was by Thomas Drew, a playwright only otherwise known for a historical drama, The Life of the Duchess of Suffolk, written to speak to the concerns James I had while considering marrying his son Charles to a Catholic princess. Of Drew's version of the John Tyndale murder, nothing else is known. Of the surviving domestic tragedy plays, 
A Warning for Fair Women was first produced in 1599 by the Lord Chamberlain's Men and printed in quarto edition that year. The full title is A Warning of Fair Women, containing the most tragical and lamentable murder of Master George Sanders of London Merchant near Shooter's Hill, consented unto by his own wife. Like Arden of Faversham, the play dramatises the motivations for the murder, the act itself, and the trial and execution of the perpetrators. Although some scholars argue that the play is as performable today as Arden of Faversham is, others find it very inferior and of most interest because of the detail of domestic life and views on crime and punishment that it includes. The authorship is unknown. Two Tragedies in One by Robert Yarrington, sometimes called Two Lamentable Tragedies, combines two murder stories. As its subtitle says, the one of the murder of Master Beach, a chandler in Thames Street, and his boy, done by Thomas Merry. The other, a young child murdered in a wood by two ruffians with the consent of his uncle. Yarrington is an otherwise unknown playwright and the name may be a pseudonym. The play was published in 1601 and it's speculated that it was an amalgamation of two earlier plays, The Tragedy of Thomas Marry by William Houghton and John Day, which certainly makes up one half of Yarrington's play, and The Orphan's Tragedy, an apparently unfinished play by Henry Chettle, which may be the other part. Both are mentioned next to each other in Henslow's diary, but are now lost. In Two Tragedies in One, Part of the plot is set in Padua, where Pandino is dying. He writes his last will, leaving all his possessions to his son Pertillo. The will is witnessed by his brother, Falaria, who then has Pertillo murdered by two thugs. It is the honest accounting of events by one of the hired men, as he dies, that uncovers Falaria's plotting, and he too is sentenced to death by the Duke of Padua. The part of the play featuring Thomas Marry takes place in London, where Marry is caught and tried for his crimes thanks to the unwitting testimony of his former servant, Harry Williams. Marry is hanged alongside his innocent sister, Rachel. The punishment of innocent females does seem to be a recurring theme in these plays. Presumably the pathos of this was understood to appeal to audiences very much. Harry, the servant, is saved from death by pleading the benefit of the clergy and is branded on his left hand, as was the custom for those who had received this benefit. The benefit of the clergy can be traced back to the early Christian days of the Roman Empire, when emperors began to grant certain exemptions for the clergy. By the 10th century, the distinction between secular courts and ecclesiastical courts, dealing with church matters and matters of canon law, was well established. Any cleric charged with a civil crime could demand to be tried in the ecclesiastical court, which they usually did because the ecclesiastical courts were seen as being more lenient than the secular court, where punishments for even minor crimes could be very brutal. Initially, the defendant had to be dressed as a cleric and tonsured, that is, with the head shaven in the recognised sign of religious devotion. But by the 12th century, the laws had been amended to demand a literary test as proof of the right to be tried in the ecclesiastical court. Reading from the Latin Bible was that test, which effectively opened up the legal route to any educated person. 
In fact, this legal loophole became a gaping chasm when the literary test became the reading in Latin of a single verse of Psalm 50. O God, have mercy on me according to thine heartfelt mercifulness. So that anyone, literate or otherwise, who was capable of learning the lines could plead the benefit. In 1488, Henry VII tried to curtail the practice as part of his clerical abuse reforms and, when the accused could not be proved to be a practising member of the clergy, restricted its use by any one individual to one single event. He introduced the branding on the thumb of the left hand to identify those who had already received the benefit. Henry VIII and Elizabeth both tightened the rules further, as did several subsequent monarchs and parliaments but the benefit of the clergy wasn't officially abolished until 1827, which was just as well for Ben Jonson, but more of that another time. The fourth surviving domestic tragedy, the Yorkshire tragedy, is distinct from the other three in style and method. It was first played in May 1608 and printed in quarto soon after. The plot concerns another true-life story of domestic murder that has featured in ballads and at least one pamphlet in the years immediately prior to the play. Walter Calverley, a landowner in Yorkshire, was executed in August 1605 for the murder of his wife and children. The play depicts him as a hard-drinking brute who is over-fond of gambling, a combination that means he returns from London impoverished and with his sights on his wife's dowry lands that can be sold for cash. Despite his harsh treatment of her, he is seen beating her on stage, she agrees to talk to her father. As he refuses to release the lands but gets the husband a place at court, she returns in hopeful mood, but problems have been mounting for her husband as he is being chased for his debts. Eventually, he believes he has only one choice, to kill his three children so they are not condemned to a life of poverty. He succeeds in killing two of them and wounding his wife and two servants. As he flees, he is detained and hauled off to the local justice of the peace. From there, he is sent off to trial when he becomes repentant and his wife is willing to plead for a pardon, but there is no doubt that his fate is sealed. From the first printing, this play was attributed to Shakespeare, a claim that was then repeated in later editions. Some later scholars have agreed with this, but tended to focus on just one soliloquy by the wife as textual evidence. But modern scholarship places the play firmly from the hands of Thomas Middleton. The play is short, consisting of only eight or ten scenes, depending on how the breaks in the action are interpreted, but this is probably explained in the detail of the first edition that refers to it as one part of four plays called The Yorkshire Tragedy. The unanswered question is why the related three plays to be performed with it were not printed at the same time. Because so few examples of the subgenre of the domestic tragedy have survived, it will only ever be regarded as a side note to the great Elizabethan and Jacobean tragedies. Even if more examples had survived, it's likely that they would be little performed today, however much they have proved interesting to those who study 16th century society. Like new Greek comedy, where a genre focuses on the domestic and the lower levels of society, it doesn't translate across the centuries as easily as tragedy of the great, the good and the not-so-good does.
It seems fair to conclude that the contemporary audience loved a potboiler of a plot and gossipy scandal very much. And it's possible that plays of this nature were even more popular in their day than what we would now consider the best of the period. The domestic tragedy was an entertainment that fed off the lurid fascination with deviant behaviour and extreme human emotions, in just the same way as the true crime shows do today. 400 years on, and we might conclude that for entertainment, little has changed. Next time, as we get to the end of this season on the podcast, I'll be doing my best to draw together the strands that make up the English Renaissance theatre and pulling at least a couple of threads that I dropped along the way. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find a podcast on Instagram or X to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. If you do feel able to help out with the costs of running the podcast, then please head over to Patreon, where you'll find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. You can also find all the details of that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via x at thoetp. (laughs) 